I like to call the preparation candle. And the two people I always think of when I think of the second week of Advent and being prepared for His coming are Simeon and Anna uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And so if you're not familiar with them, you need to read their story sometime. So many of God's people were not prepared. They knew the promises, but they didn't place their faith in them and they didn't prepare themselves for it. And it always is a reminder to me, I want to be like Simeon, I want to be like Anna at the second coming of our Savior. I want to not only know the promise of His coming, but I want to be prepared. And so I want you to do something there at your tables. I want you to talk a little bit about preparing uh, for Christmas this year and preparing your heart in a Christ uh, to worship the Christ of Christmas. So I want you to talk about two things. One, what's the greatest obstacle to uh, keeping Christ and the reason for Christmas in the forefront in your family? Like for ours, it's just plain busyness. And so talk about what your obstacle is and then how you overcome that or how you have brought the meaning and the purpose of Christmas into your home, into your own private devotions or into your family discussion. So you can share the obstacles and share how you've overcome them or need to overcome them. So spend some time together and then we will pray. And uh, we just want to pause and thank you for today. Uh, this day, the second Sunday of Advent, that we can prepare our hearts and rejoice that you came once and rejoice that you are coming again. And Father, help us, whatever the obstacles are, and so many of us, it's just, it's time, it's busyness, it's, it's the need for discipline and prioritizing, just spending time with you at this time. Um, and what a great time of year to slow down and to, to spend that time alone with you, but also spend that time with ones we love, focusing on your lordship in our lives. And so I thank you for each person here. I thank you for the homes, the families, the individuals that are represented. And I pray, Lord, that we would, uh, hupakuo, we would place ourselves up underneath what is about to be taught from your word. And before we even hear it, we would present ourselves and say, Lord, we're just going to obey. We're just going to obey what we hear from your word uh, without reservation and without holding back. We're going to obey. And so, Father, uh, we know that you share with us the power and the grace to do that. And so we are excited, expectant, and we want to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Where we're unwrapping Christmas from Philippians 2. So you want to turn your Bibles to Philippians 2, and as you unwrap Christmas in Philippians 2, I told you last week, it's like the unwrapping of a one of those prank gifts or those uh, uh, dirty Santa gifts where you open a box, and there's a box within a box within a box, and you keep unwrapping, and you keep finding more. And, and when you read Philippians 2, we first unwrap Philippians 2, and you find a cradle. And then you unwrap it some more and you find a cross. And then you unwrap it some more and you find a crown. And then you unwrap it some more and you finally find the community for which Christ came to build. And so as we read Philippians 2, remember this is his story. And it tells the story of Jesus from the cradle to the cross to the crown to the community. So let's look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement... In Christ, if there's any 
consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant, literally a slave, and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But don't stop reading. Look at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, everything in this chapter is intended to show us the Spirit of Christ so that we'll share that same Spirit with one another as a church body, but also shine it out in the darkness of the unsaved world around us. Now, last week we looked at the cradle, and we've zeroed in on verses 5 through seven. Look at those in your Bible, verses five through seven. And we saw that when we look into the cradle, we see Jesus in his deity, equal to God, according to verse six. Before the incarnation, before the first Christmas, he was equal with God, worthy of the same glory, and clothed in that same glory. But then we also see Jesus in his humanity, who is equal to us in every way except one way. He's sinless. And in the incarnation, he takes off his robe of glory and he puts on the robe of humanity. And he's fully human without becoming any less God. But ultimately, when you look in the cradle, according to Philippians 2, what you want to see is not just his deity, his humanity, but his humility. And you see that he voluntarily stepped down from that lofty position in heaven. He surrendered his possessions. He set aside his privileges. He sacrificed his preferences. We saw that Jesus was not only stripped of his divine frequent flyer miles, but he became a slave, a servant among humans. He took the lowest position as a human being. So what do you see when you look in the cradle? You see a spirit of serving others. So why did he do it? And here's what we said last week. Mark 10:45. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And it's that last part of Mark 10:45 and it's verse 8 that I want you guys to focus in on this morning. Notice again in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, 
he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this morning, we're going to look at the cross, and we're going to see the spirit of sacrificing ourselves. So the first thing I want you to see is that when we unwrap Christmas, and we see the spirit of Christmas, and we find a cross, we want to realize the shadow of the cross is over the cradle. The shadow of the cross falls and is cast over the cradle. You might be thinking, now wait a minute, I thought this was Christmas. This is not Easter, this is Christmas. Why are we talking about the cross? Why are we talking about the crucifixion? Well, that's a good question, but there's an equally good answer. And the answer is this, Jesus was born to die. Jesus was born to die. Now, you might say, well, of course we know that, because we're, we're so familiar with this stuff, we forget the mystery and the truth of it. Listen, that's really radical. Jesus was born to die. Do you realize he was literally the only baby that was ever born to die? He's the only one that was ever born to die. Every other human baby was born to live. Adam says so in Genesis 3.20. Here's what he says. Now the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Not all the dead, not all the dying, but all the living. But even though every human being is born to live, because of our sin, every baby ever born will one day die. And sadly, some don't even make it out of the womb. Whether that's because of God's mysterious providence or because of a misguided or murderous choice of abortion, but mark it down, every human being born to live always dies due to their sin. But Jesus was different. He was fully human, and even though his conception was miraculous by the Holy Spirit, and even though his birth broke open the womb of a virgin, his Birth was very human, very typical. There was pain, there was crying, there was bleeding, there was joy, and there was life. But Jesus is the only human being that was born to die from the first day of this birth. And that's often overlooked in the Christmas story. We see all of the joy of the coming of Christ, the birth, the baby, and we forget that there's the shadow of the cross over the cradle. Now, let me give you a couple examples from the Christmas story that sometimes we overlook or miss. When Simeon, I talked about him earlier, the, uh, the old believer there in the temple, when Simeon prophesies to Mary at the presentation of the baby, Jesus, at the temple, the shadow of the cross was cast over the baby who was only six weeks old. Listen to Luke 2, 34 through 35. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. A sign to be opposed pictures that opposition against Christ that's going to come. And the sword refers to Mary's future broken heart at the foot of of the cross. But there's more. Think about when the wise men brought their gifts to Jesus. 
the shadow of the cross was cast over the child who was around two years old at that time. In Matthew 2, 11 through 12, we read, After coming into the house, it's not the manger, it's not the cave where he was born, they saw the child with, his, with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's that last gift, myrrh, that casts the shadow of the cross. Because myrrh consisted of an aromatic resin of certain shrubs that was used in preparing a body for burial. So even at his birth, as we look into the cross, we see the shadow of the cross. I was reminded of this uh, again this week as I was reading through one of the Advent devotionals I'm using for December, and it reminded me of the picture of Rembrandt, one of my, well, my favorite artist of all, and he painted a picture, the adoration of the shepherds, and it shows the shepherds coming into the manger and typical of Rembrandt, who had all that contrast between light and dark. The light is shining forth, literally out of the Christ child, the baby Jesus, and everything is dark around. But you can make out to the right of the picture, in the darkness of the barn that he had painted, there's a ladder leaned against the crossbeam of, of the barn, and that crossbeam and that ladder symbolizes in pictures a cross. And at the fir- foot of that ladder is a rooster picturing the denial, the, the cock crowing three times, and Christ going to the cross. And so it's just a vivid picture and a reminder of this, that unless we see the cross overshadows, overshadowing the cradle, we've lost the real meaning of Christ's birth. If you don't see the cross overshadowing the cradle, then you don't really understand the meaning of Christmas. Listen to Mark 10, 45 again. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and what? To give His life a ransom for many. Listen to Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. But why? So that He might redeem those who are under the law. Listen to Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You see, even before the foundation of the earth, there was a cross in Jesus' future, and every step took Jesus closer to the cross. Hey, as important as the incarnation is, the incarnation is not what saves us. What saves us is the crucifixion. The wages of sin is death, and we needed one who was incarnate to die and pay the price for our sins. So that's why he came. Bethlehem only happened so Calvary could happen. The incarnation happened so the crucifixion would have meaning, and so that the resurrection and the exaltation would be victorious. Without the crucifixion, there is no victory. I like how John MacArthur puts it in a very vivid way. Listen to this. Those soft baby hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made in order that nails might be driven through them. 
Those chubby feet, pink and unable to walk, were one day to walk a hill and be nailed to a cross. That sweet head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed in order that someday men might crush into it a crown of thorns. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear to reveal a broken heart. And that's exactly why God made that body. Jesus was born to die. I want you to look at this uh, video uh, by Paul David Tripp about Christmas and that other tree is about a tree. Take a look at this. I love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas. Uh, I love setting up our ridiculously big Christmas tree, 12 feet high. It's nuts. Uh, I love decorating it. I love all of those traditions. And I'm very aware that Christmas is all about a tree. But it's not the tree that you decorate. There's another tree that Christmas is all about. In fact, I've thought many times that even before the foundations of the earth, there was a tree in Jesus' future. And from the first breath that Jesus took, every step he took was marching toward this tree. Uh, this is not a tree of happiness. This is not a tree of joy. This is not a tree that you would uh, celebrate. Nobody would ever want to be any part of this tree but Jesus. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus approached this tree with joy. That tree is not an evergreen. It was a cross. Jesus knew when he came to earth that that cross was his destiny. When the angels sang, their song of joy was really about the cross. When the wise men searched for Jesus, they were searching for one who would hang on a cross. Because there was no other way for what was broken inside of human beings to be fixed other than the cross. And so Jesus came. He didn't come as a reigning king. He didn't come to be celebrated. He came to suffer and to die. And so it's true that every step he took brought him to the cross. That cross was an essential part of everything that God had in mind for human beings because what was broken at the garden, the separation of sin, had to be dealt with. There had to be one who would live perfectly, who would die acceptably, who would rise again, conquering sin and death in order for us to have forgiveness, acceptance with God, power for living, 
and eternal life. I would just say to you, my prayer is that when you look at your well-decorated tree, that you would remember that other tree. Your tree that you decorate can't give you life. The other tree is a source of life. Christmas is a story about that tree and the one who came to hang on that tree to satisfy God's requirement so we would know life abundant and life forever. This is good stuff, isn't it? Isn't that good? Good reminder as you look at your own Christmas tree, but the cross overshadows the cradle. So let's take a look at this. And even though that's true, I want you to understand this. The same attitude that took Jesus from heaven into the incarnation and into that cradle is the same attitude that took him to the cross. That's what Paul wants us to see out of Philippians 2. Understood this way, both the cradle and the cross unwrap the true spirit of Christmas. The cross was just that final step down in Jesus' unbelievable humility to serve others by sacrificing himself. And I try to kind of diagram out for you. I don't know, that helps me. It may not help you, but that's, that's Philippians 2 right there. There he is, the Son of God, equal to God, clothed in his glory, receiving all that he deserves, enjoying his position, his privileges, everything, his power. And then he empties himself, according to verse 7. And that's the incarnation. And he becomes fully human without becoming any less God. But he doesn't stop there. According to verse 8, he is now seen as a human being. He's not seen as who he really is. He's treated as less than what he really is. And he's got a choice to make. And what does he do? He humbles himself. And that's the humiliation of Christ for 30, 33 years on this planet, being treated as only human, he humbles himself by being obedient to the point of death. But but wait, that's not it. One step more, the crucifixion, it's not just any death. It's a shameful death. It's a slave's death. And he takes a slave's death the most shameful way to die at that time. And so here's what I, I want you to see in point two. It's this, that the spirit of Christmas is seen in the cross of Christ's crucifixion. It's seen in the cross of Christ's crucifixion. And so, we're just going to look at verse 8 today. And I want you to think about this. How low would Jesus go to obey God and serve others? Think of that game Limbo, you know, the Limbo, come on, you know, sing it. And how low can you go? How low can you go? Well, the question is, how low... Would Jesus go to obey God and serve others? Well, the first thing you see in verse 8 is Jesus being seen and treated as only human. He humbles himself further. Now, you've got to understand, coming from heaven to earth, you know, you would say, hey, if you're like me, and I think we're all this way, when we do something humbling, we want to be recognized for it. Did Jesus get recognized for it? Yeah, sure, the wise men came. We know that. The shepherds came. But what about the rest of the world? What about the Roman Empire? 
what about all the kings and all the people? No. How do you respond when people see you or treat you as less than you really are? Do you understand this question is rocking our nation right now? You realize people are looting and rioting and protesting over this very question of being seen and treated as less than I really am? And it's not just people out there. It's not just a certain race or a certain skin color. You and I probably have had opportunity this past week to be treated as less than we really are. To be slighted. To be ignored. To be overlooked. And I ask you, how did you respond? How do I respond? I know I get hurt. I get discouraged when I'm overlooked. I get angry when I'm treated as less than what I really am. I get envious. I get jealous. I seek out others that will share my hurt and then build me up. Hey, I was slighted, wasn't I? Yes, you sure were. I thought I was. I feel better now. I may even plan ways to show those who see me as less than I am just how great I actually am. And if they don't get it, I might choose to never be around them again. I might defriend them from Facebook. I, I, I may stop giving them anything for Christmas. That's what you may do. That's what I may do. But what did Jesus do? He humbled himself. He said, hey, I'm not going to make much of who I am. Even though you're mistreating me, even though you're misguided, even though you see me as less, you just see me as a human being. I'm God. Hey, I want you to know I'm God. The irony of this is Jesus spent more time in his three years of public ministry getting people to not tell that to others than he did promoting it. Why? Because he didn't want to be known and by promoting himself. He didn't want to be known for what he did. He wanted to be known for who he really was, and he wanted people to see who he was by faith and by a trust relationship. So what did Jesus do when he was seen to be less than what he really was and treated? Number two, Jesus humbles himself by being obedient. Jesus humbles himself by being obedient to the Father for the sake of others. Others who didn't deserve it, and by the way, demon know they needed it or wanted it. Wow. Wow. Hey, you're treating me as less than I really am, so guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to humble myself and be obedient to God, and I'm still going to serve you. I'm telling you, this passage, if you will take yourself into this passage and you will let the Holy Spirit work you over in this passage, you will see the ugliness of your sin and the greatness of your Savior. And it will cause you to worship Him. It will cause you to long for Him. Listen, Jesus became human so He could be obedient like Adam wasn't and we're not. Jesus became human to be a servant that we were born to be, and that we're too proud to become. Listen to Hebrews 10. Turn your Bibles. I don't want you to just hear it. I want you to see it. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 9. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 9. See, we, we've got to understand, Christmas is throughout the Bible. Christmas is throughout the Bible. The incarnation and the purpose of the incarnation is throughout the Bible. 
Here in Hebrews 10, listen to it, verse 5. Therefore, when He comes into the world, that's the incarnation, that's the first Christmas. Here is what Jesus says when He comes into the world. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, To do your will, O God. You see, we're talking about the spirit of sacrifice in the cross. And the sacrifice is not little things you do for God and say, Here, God, aren't you impressed? I sacrificed. I gave this. I did this. I did that one act. Look at these individual acts. No, Jesus says, it's not about those individual acts. It's about a body you have given me. And I am here to do your will. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's what pleases God, and that's what Jesus did. Now, think about Jesus' obedience. Think about this. Because it's this kind of obedience that made the cross a a a a acceptable. There you go. I got it. Acceptable to God. That was a little scary there for a moment. It was this kind of obedience that satisfied God's wrath on the cross. Jesus was not just sinless. We say that. We know that. He wasn't just sinless, but he was positively righteous. Are you with me? He was always in right relationship with God and others, even when they mistreated him, even when they saw him as less, even when they treated him as less. Listen to this. Even when he was overlooked, Jesus was obedient. Even when he was misunderstood, Jesus was obedient. Even when those closest to him let him down, Jesus was obedient. Even when he was betrayed by one of his own, Jesus was obedient. And listen, even when he was unjustly treated and arrested and wrongly beaten and wrongfully executed by an unjust and cowardly judge and ruler, Jesus was obedient. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what is every our nation is enthralled. It's it's almost on fire over these very issues. And yet here's Jesus showing us the way out of that. And he's the one who can relate to it because he's experienced it at a level that no ethnic race has ever experienced on this planet. He was God and he was treated horribly, horribly. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope as I read these headlines. That gives me hope as I try to reach out to people. I may not understand all that they're going through, but I know the one who does and I can point you to him. I can point you to him. You see, Jesus never committed a sin of commission. He never willfully did what he should not do. But more so, Jesus never committed a sin of omission. He never once failed to do what he should do. Now, that's what really rocks my world. You see, there comes to a level in our obedience to God where we stop doing the bad things, right? And a lot of us coast at that point. There, I've got it. I don't do the big baddies. No one can really catch me in any of the the overt. You know, I don't do what I shouldn't do. But the bigger question is, am I doing what I ought to do? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did all that. And why did he do it? He came to pay a debt he didn't owe for a people like us who owe a debt we could never pay. But how did he do it? And that's where we come to number three. How did he do all this? Jesus became obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, but a cross death. A cross death. Now, the issue is not so much here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. It's not so much our redemption. I mean, that's there. But it's how low would Jesus go to be obedient to serve others and secure our redemption? What did he do to do it? How low did he go? And he went so low as to suffer a cross death. He voluntarily died a cross death with two rebels on each side of him to serve and to save the likes of you and me when we didn't deserve it, when we didn't want it, and in fact, we rebelled against it. That's radical. Now, a cross death doesn't hit you and I like it would have hit the Philippians in that Roman colony that was very proud of being a Roman colony in the, in the eastern part of the empire who were filled with veteran Roman soldiers and a city that was filled with climbing the social ladder and who were proud of being Roman citizens and who within the church brought that spirit into the church and they wouldn't serve each other and there was conflict in in being on ministry teams and there was conflict and there was division and strife because I'm better than you and, and you're mistreating me and you're not seeing me and rewarding me the way I think you ought to reward me. See, this cross death doesn't hit us like it did them. So let me take some time to talk a little bit about the shame, the shame of a cross death. The cross was designed and used to execute criminals in the slowest, most painful, agonizing, and humiliating way possible. And it was reserved only for basically three kinds of people. Slaves, pirates, and traitors, or rebels. Now, you got to get this. Rebels. See, the two guys on the, either side of Jesus weren't thieves. The word used there is more likely to refer to revolutionaries. They were, they were rebels. They were trying to overthrow Rome. And there in the middle is Jesus, who claims to be the king of the Jews, the biggest rebel of them all. And yet the reality is he was the most obedient man on the planet. He's no rebel. He's the obedient one. Even to the point of voluntarily getting on that cross. The irony and the, and the radicalness. Well, we need to get it. In those days, if you had been in the church at Philippi and you said, Hey, Joe suffered a slave's death today. People would have known immediately you referred to crucifixion. You didn't have to say crucifixion. You could just say slave's death. So when they see and read, when they heard this being read in that, in that congregation, in that Roman colony, who 
Although who who uh, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You would have heard a gasp. You would have heard a hushed silence. You would have heard a shocking sense of awe. You mean a slave's death for the God of the universe? Being such an unspeakably horrifying way to die, Roman citizens were not subjected to it. Anyone hanging on a cross was of no value whatsoever. They were a curse. They were a non-entity. They were a non-citizen. They were a humiliation and a shame. When Paul wrote to the Philippians about the nature of Christ's death, they knew exactly what he was talking about because they knew what the cross signified. John Stott, in his classic book, The Cross of Christ, quotes a Roman, ancient Roman by the name of Cicero on how debased and unthinkable such a death was. Here's what Cicero said. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There's no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. Now, I got a picture for you in your lesson notes. The earliest known depiction of the crucifixion of Christ came as a mockery from Christ's enemies. It's a piece of graffiti scratched into stone just years after the gospel was first preached in Rome. And it's a rough sketch of a crucified man, but with the head of a donkey. And a young man has his arms raised in reverence of worship. And the letters sketched below it read this. Alexemenos worships his God. You see, it was a common statement of insult, portraying Christians as those who gave their lives in worship to an ass. A man of such shame, of such little dignity, that he suffered a slave's death. You see, to them, the religion of Christians is foolish inasmuch as they worship a crucified man and even the instrument itself of his punishment. They are said to worship the head of an ass. Now, that's repulsive to us as Christ followers. But it conveys how contemptible a cross death was. How low would he go? How low would he go to serve you and I, to save you and I, and to save a world of lost sinners? He would go so low as to suffer the shame of a cross death. You see, it sounds just like today's headlines. Seen as less than you really are, unjustly treated, wrongfully arrested, cruelly beaten, unfairly executed, an unjust, perhaps, judicial system, cowardly leadership. You see, it's not just today's headlines. It's what happened to Jesus when he freely came to earth to obey God and to serve the likes of us. Now, I'll freely admit, and I've spent quite a bit of time the last couple of weeks trying to read through and see what is the gospel answer to this unraveling in our culture. And I've concluded, I've seen a lot of writing, I've read a lot of 
of other people's ideas and even good gospel men and 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 and, and not I just I just I'm, I just don't have all the answers for what is presently taking place but I've concluded I know the one who does I know the one who does and because he willingly suffered far more injustice far more unfairness far more shame than any of us can ever imagine or will experience. He can relate to what people are going through. He can relate to what you might be going through right now. And he can say, I've gone even further. I've gone even lower. And so for the time we have left, the answers that I think we find in what Jesus went through for what's going through, maybe what's going on, at least for Christians today in our culture, is number three, the spirit of sacrifice is seen in our obedience to God in serving others. It's seen in our obedience to God in serving others. I don't really have any other answer except look to Christ and do what He did. Look to Christ and do what He did. And don't despair of doing it Because He not only shows us what to do. Remember two weeks ago we talked about He shares with us the ability to do it. Amen? He doesn't just show us the way. He shares with us the spirit of sacrifice. So, remember Hebrews 10. Keep Hebrews 10 in our minds. Jesus isn't looking for isolated acts of giving and isolated acts of serving so that we can puff ourselves up and say, I'm better, I'm good enough. He's looking for a body. Behold, a body you have prepared for me to do your will, O God. But here's what we got to understand. Here's the spirit of sacrifice. Number one, obeying God in serving others will often mean being seen as less than we really are in Christ. Obeying God in serving others will often mean being seen, and you could even include in that, and treated as less than we really are in Christ. Now, what do we do when that happens? I've already talked a little bit about that. What do we do? See, we get all excited and we're, man, I'm going to start serving the Lord. I'm going to start serving our church body. I'm I'm going to get on a ministry team. And then what happens? Something inevitably happens that we are not seen as who we really are or mistakenly think we are and we're not treated exactly the way we think we ought to be treated. And then what do we do? What do we do? Well, here's what Jesus did. He humbled himself and he stayed focused on remaining obedient to serve people who even treated him as less than what he deserved. Now, that's not politically correct. And that goes against our sin nature. But it's what Jesus did. Aren't you glad the first time that he was mistreated or seen as less than what he really was, he didn't quit? Aren't you glad that on that night in Gethsemane, as he said, not... Lord, this is what I would prefer to have my ministry look like, a crossless ministry. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Oh, aren't you glad he didn't turn away when, they, when his best buddies 
forsook him? Aren't you glad that he didn't say, wait a minute, Judas just betrayed me and I invested three years in this knucklehead. I'm out of here. If this is the way it's going down. No, he, he, he stayed obedient. Number two, obeying God in serving others will often result in being separated from the good life in the world's estimation. I say separated because it says he was obedient to the point of death, and death in the Bible is always separation. Don't just think of dying, think of being separated. Obedience often means death to our dreams. Obedience often means death to our dreams in order to fulfill God's will for us, which in the end will be far better. We're going to get to that, Romans, uh, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. It's going to get better. But before it gets better, it gets what? It's worse. We forget that sometimes. And we forget when we're discipling young Christians to remind them that, hey, get involved in ministry, but understand this, it will involve dying to your preferences It'll involve dying to your time schedules. It'll involve dying to sleeping in. It will involve dying to many things that the world says. Think about this. Sooner or later, obedience to Christ and the Word of God will mean that we must die to someone or something. We will have to separate from those things and those people that seek to hold us back from doing the will of God. That's the spirit of sacrifice and obedience. I can't tell you how many times in 25 years here I have seen individuals, particularly singles, men, women, it doesn't matter, get on fire for God, but even married people get on fire for God, and I can almost mark it down. Give it six months, give it nine months. God's going to bring a relationship in Or God's going to bring that spouse in and say, it's either Jesus or me, and they they just go wacky. And they go all off track. They're headed this way with Jesus, and then all of a sudden, and and God allows that because it's a test of our obedience. Are you willing to separate and die to that relationship or to the acceptance of that? Think about this. Listen, listen. In obeying the Father for our sakes, Jesus was estranged from his own family. His mother, brothers, and sisters called him crazy and tried to prevent him from following God's will for his life. In obeying the Father for our sakes, Jesus was separated from those closest to him. They all, twelve disciples, forsook him. One denied him three times, and one betrayed him with a kiss. In obeying the Father for our sake, Jesus was separated from living the good life and a full life in the world's eyes. He never owned a home. He never married. He never had children. He never attained worldly success or made a name for himself in the world. He never lived to celebrate his 34th year birthday. Jesus was separated from what the world says was the good life. Wow. And why did he do it? Well, Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself to become obedient to the Father in serving others for God's glory and for our good. Listen, I don't know about you, but I know I need this reminder that God gave me a body to do his will. 
and doing His will made me being separated and dying to good things and to even good people in order to stay track on doing His will. Ultimately, obedience to Christ and serving one another means what? Dying to self. Ultimately, it means dying to self. And that's why Philippians 1.21 says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You see, Paul's out of the picture now. Christ is everything. Philippians 2.20, this very same chapter, Paul says of Timothy, I have no one of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests and not those of Christ. So ultimately, obeying God and serving others will sometimes mean being shamed in public. Obeying God and serving others will sometimes mean being shamed in public. This is to the point of the cross death. Now, we just have a hard time. Can you relate to that, being shamed in public? Maybe you can. But it really goes against everything America and American Christianity seeks to promote. Right? But do you realize that most Christians in the rest of the world this Christmas understands the shame in obeying Christ. Think of the Muslim who accepts Christ and takes that first step of obedience. We're going to baptize this morning. But they're beaten by his or her father and disowned by all their relatives. What public shame they endure for the cross. Think of the Iraqi Christians right now who are refusing to deny Christ. And and because they refuse to deny Christ, they watch their children, little children, Preteen children violated and beheaded in their very, before their very eyes in public and, and in the day of the internet as gruesome, and, and I don't recommend it, but you can actually watch Christians beheaded by video. What shame they endure for the cross. I mean, I, I, I could just go on. And what we call shame is so small in comparison to what other Christians are suffering. But more than that, what Christ suffered. So what do we learn from unwrapping Christmas and finding not only a cradle, but beneath that a cross? Well, we learn that there's good news. That, listen, Jesus Christ is such that there's no place too low There's no shame too shameful. There's no sin too sinful. There's no pain too painful that Christ has not experienced it and Christ would not reach out to you to save you. That's just who He is. So let me end with this. Have you unwrapped Christmas yet? And have you found a cross? Your life can show forth, my life, the spirit of sacrificial obedience to God and serving others. I've given you some questions to think about. This is your application. This is what you need to spend this week thinking on. How do I need to humble myself more to be a servant of others right here at our church? Like Paul, what do I need to sacrifice or count as dung in order to know Christ better and be more obedient? Like Paul, am I willing to keep serving through hard times and not just check out until Jesus comes? There's a lot of Christians that are just hanging on till Jesus comes. And Paul says, man, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I've got to stay in the game. 
Think of Epaphroditus in this very chapter. Do I serve others with an attitude that's willing to even sacrifice my own life to meet their needs? Is that radical? Let's pray. Father, we come and we're amazed that your son would go so low as to not only become human, but to humble himself and to die a cross death. Father, I hope that we have been awakened this morning to just how low you would go to stay obedient and to serve and to save us. And then, Father, may we look at our relationships in times when we're slighted, times when we're treated as less than who we really are, and instead of complaining, instead of quitting, may we humble ourselves and stay obedient and focus on others rather than ourselves. Lord, I cannot do this. We cannot do this unless you share with us this spirit of sacrifice. And so we claim it as ours in Christ Jesus. And we want to show it this week in our relationships, in the workplace, at school, wherever we are, for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take some time to meditate on those questions. Let God help you answer them.